I was at a salad bar with Travolta. It was the late 70s, back when croutons were all the rage. I was living in Van Nuys, working days at a sedimentary rock shop and nights as upholsterer to the stars, and still seeing my almost wife number two, Cecilia. Now there was a woman. Cecilia worked at a fabric store on Victory Boulevard. I was browsing for Naga Hide for a bar stool seat cover for Ed McMahon, and she talked me into buying $800 worth of taffeta and chenille and taking her out for mixed greens and unlimited toppings after her shift. The salad bar was reservations only, owned and operated by a Beverly Hills Israeli whose twin passions were romaine lettuce and decadence. There were mirrors on the ceiling, a disco ball above the dressings, urinal cakes signed by KC and the Sunshine Band and the Bee Gees, cocaine residue on the bacon bits and baby corn. Burt Reynolds was shuffling a quarter pound of sesame seeds into his pants pockets. For later, he explained. Travolta's date was a malt liquor spokesmodel, beautiful but nervous. During any lull in conversation, she excused herself from our table to further drown her salad in Thousand Island dressing. Travolta had hired me a month prior to reupholster his furniture in various exotic leathers, eel, walrus, peccary, dick-dick, bandicoot. The refurbished sofas and love seats were gorgeous but extremely uncomfortable. Guests at Travolta's Hollywood Hills bungalow did a lot of standing. Cecilia asked me how I got into working with sedimentary rocks, and I said igneous rocks were my first love, but there was only money in sedimentary and metamorphic. Marlon Brando accidentally swallowed a napkin ring, and Travolta attempted the Heimlich, but his execution was all wrong. His hands impotently kneading Brando's vast gelatinous stomach until Francis Ford Coppola tapped Travolta on the shoulder and took over, expelling the napkin ring from Brando's windpipe with a few efficient abdominal thrusts. Cheers for Coppola, ice water for Brando, humiliation for Travolta, slinking away from the salad bar in defeated silence as his date emptied the entire receptacle of Thousand Island dressing onto her plate, and Burt Reynolds disco-danced with 1978's Pasadena Rose Parade Queen, the sesame seeds percussively shaking in his pockets like dried beans inside a maraca. So this one time, I was at a drive-thru with the Eagles, Don Henley driving, Glenn Fry riding shotgun, Joe Walsh and Don Felder playing a travel game of their own invention in the back seat called Who Has Amphetamines. Don Henley likes the drive-thru intercom girl's voice and says, forget the chicken fingers and the onion rings and the carbonated orange and purplish beverages, all I want is you. All I want is Anastasia, my almost wife number three. 
a Russian mail-order bride who got lost in the mail and found herself prowling the higher-end dive bars of Glendale in pursuit of love, stoli, and a green card. All Glen Fry wants is a 32-ounce collectible mug filled with bacon, egg, and cheese in that exact order. All Joe Walsh and Don Felder want is to know who has amphetamines. At the time, I was subletting a spare room from a gentleman contortionist in Burbank. The contortionist was so often compacted into a tiny ball or helix or pretzel, he no longer needed the extra space. For work, I alternated between cleaning up murder scenes for the bereaved and backyard grottos for the nouveau riche. I became intimately familiar with the smell of chlorine and the sight of blood. My first murder was a grisly double homicide soundtracked to Camp Town Races and Pop Goes the Weasel, an ice cream man running dope where he should have been serving fudge sickles. My first grotto was Jack Nicholson's. Now there was a grotto. Jack was always too stoned to locate his wallet and paid me instead in kitchen appliances. My weekday rate was a toaster per diem, and weekends and federal holidays, my fee was an espresso maker. Don Henley keeps sweet-talking the intercom girl, asks her name, where she's been all his life, what she's wearing, and the customers behind us are soon twenty deep, honking, cursing, pleading, extended middle fingers. Hey man, says Glenn Fry to the irate driver of a Chevy Impala, take it easy. Don Henley asks the intercom girl if she's ever taken it to the limit. All the intercom girl wants is to no longer be speaking through an intercom. Take it easy on my dick, tequila sunrise, says the driver of the Impala. I'll bet he has amphetamines, whispers Joe Walsh to Don Felder. So this one time, I was carving pumpkins with Scorsese. Spielberg was there, De Niro, De Palma, Lucas, Eastwood, Coppola, my almost wife number four, Arlene. I was living in a Ramada Inn in Reseda. I didn't have a room, but did have an understanding with the cleaning staff. They let me sleep in an alcove where there used to be an ice machine and bathe after hours in the outdoor pool. Again, I knew the smell of chlorine. I knew the warmth of freshly laundered towels and the start and end times of continental breakfast and which housekeepers would slip me a complimentary soap or shampoo. Scorsese was on the veranda of Spielberg's house in the Palisades with a Valium and Coke and a carving knife. Neighborhood critics had savaged his jack-o'-lanterns the previous year, dismissing their triangular eyes and jagged smiles as cliched and derivative. And so while De Palma carved Frankenstein's monster and Eastwood carved Samantha from Bewitched, Scorsese merely stared mournfully at the untouched pumpkin before him and sipped his Valium and Coke, paralyzed by self-doubt and fear. 
Arlene didn't know I was living in the alcove of a Ramada Inn. I had met her at a celebrity three-legged race for muscular dystrophy in the valley. The team of James Kahn and Sidney Poitier had won easily, and when she had suggested going back to my place, I had said I was sleeping on Warren Beatty's couch while my apartment was being fumigated for wasps. Arlene organized fundraising events for a variety of charities, the Red Cross, UNICEF, United Way, chiropractors without borders. Her favorite singer was Sinatra, and I was trying to carve his silhouette along with the words, fly me to the moon, inside of a heart, but my hand was unsteady, and I had to keep asking Spielberg for additional pumpkins. Things had been going a little sour for me as of late. I'd lost my job cleaning up murder scenes in the latest round of homicide layoffs, and had lost all of my backyard grotto clients to Bunk Stanley, the grotto king. Bunk had TV commercials and bus stop ads and a bejeweled crown, ermine cape, and scepter. I had a typo-riddled letter of recommendation from Tony Danza and a polyester jumpsuit. My grotto cleaning days were over. After moving into the alcove of the Ramada Inn, I had picked up some jobs cultivating exotic fruits for Hollywood directors. Sam Peckinpah had a taste for dragon eyes. Robert Altman was a pawpaw man. Spielberg had an orchard of bonabonas. The pay wasn't great, but I was getting a lot of vitamin C. My immune system was nigh invincible. I was artlessly hacking away at my fourth pumpkin when some jerk-off producer from Paramount carved the entire rat pack into a pumpkin he had personally grown on his family's farm in Pomona. Boy, did that float Arlene's boat. Sinatra, Dean Martin, Sammy Davis Jr., Peter Lawford, Joey Bishop. Who knows how that gel-haired bastard pulled off all that precision cross-hatching on the fedoras. Arlene and the producer got cozy on one of Spielberg's backyard gazebos right behind my crop of guanabanas, and I gave up on old blue eyes and instead carved a silhouette of the producer so I could stab him repeatedly with my knife. Fly me to the moon, read De Niro, off the flayed pumpkin. At least I had gotten the inscription right. My penmanship was impeccable.
until this one time I was antiquing with Garfunkel. It was the mid-80s, Simonoff harmonizing with Ladysmith Black Mombasso in South Africa, Garfunkel out west for a small, non-speaking role in The Karate Kid Part 2. I was taste-testing tap water for the city and living in the display window of a men's clothing store in Tarzana. The sales staff were too busy sleeping with each other in the dressing rooms to notice that, unlike the mannequins, I sometimes moved. Garfunkel said the key to antiquing was mercilessness. He intimidated shopkeepers into offering him submarket rates and snatched fine china and porcelain cats right out of elderly customers' hands and walked off with hundred-year-old grandfather clocks and bird baths when no one was looking. We visited an antique shop in Encino, and Garfunkel set a bathroom wastebasket on fire as a diversion so he could score a Revolutionary War-era ceramic butter churn. We went to another shop, and Garfunkel filled his pockets with turn-of-the-century pewter silverware while humming bridge over troubled water. After antiquing, we drove to the set of The Karate Kid Part 2, where I was working as a punching consultant. My almost wife number five, Caroline, advised the filmmakers on kicking. Caroline. Now there was a woman. She came from a long line of kickers. Her father had kicked campus riot police at UC Berkeley in the 60s, and his father had kicked railroad company goons during the Depression, and his father had kicked John Philip Sousa at the 1904 St. Louis World's Fair. Garfunkel showed Caroline the pewter silverware in his pockets and the ceramic butter churn, and she asked why some things become antiques and other things just become old. If you have to ask, said Garfunkel, before going into makeup, you'll never know. So this one time, I was coaching a youth hockey team in Anaheim with Axel Rose, We had drunkenly and disorderly run afoul of the law and were performing court-ordered community service, managing a roster of pre-adolescent milquitos and asthmatics on ice skates. Neither Axel nor I knew anything about hockey. We clutched bare clipboards and wore bandanas in our team's colors and screamed constantly at the teenage refs, our complaints predominantly existential, asking the refs why we were here, whether all of this was meaningless. Did we possess any capacity to alter the outcome of this game, or was every shot, every penalty, every goal already predetermined? Were we skating, passing, hip-checking in the rink of the absurd? The refs answered us with arcane, incomprehensible hand signals, further deepening our existential despair. My almost wife, number seven, Josephine, attended every game and tried to lift our team's spirits with supportive cheers, but our relationship had become toxic ever since my arrest for spraying graffiti at a police dog. 
and when not assailing the refs, I countered Josephine's cheerleading with accusations of sexual improprieties with the Zamboni driver and the opposing team's equipment manager. Josephine, now there, was a woman. We had met at a catch-your-own-sea-bass house in Playa del Rey, both of us choosing the difficulty level beginner. For beginners, catching your own sea bass involved a professional fisherman reeling the sea bass out of the harbor and then tossing it to you underhanded. For intermediates, the fisherman threw the sea bass overhand with a knuckleball spin. Josephine was a systems analyst and a recreational librarian. She insisted I speak only in whispers and organized her bookshelves according to the Dewey Decimal System. We had a good run going for a month or two. I felt like I could tell her anything as long as I told it to her very quietly. But as time went on, I tired of her cataloging and classifying me as if I were a volume of the Encyclopedia Britannica on her bookshelf and developed vocal polyps from excessive whispering. Before long, I was slipping out at night to spray paint animals, who I felt were the next logical medium for artistic expression after the aluminum siding of abandoned tenements and the concrete archways of highway overpasses. Now listen up, kids, said Axel Rose to our team in between periods, the enemy thumping us by an insurmountable sum. Our situation is hopeless, and by situation, I don't just mean this game, or this season, but the totality of our existence. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. We're all completely fucked. You, me, your parents, the refs, the other team, the Zamboni driver. The situation is, the other team is scoring at will, and we can't get a single shot off. The situation is, our best player can barely skate without falling over, and their best player is already being scouted by tweed-suited Canadians and offered five-figure endorsement deals from leading maple syrup concerns. The situation is, the world population is exploding exponentially. Fossil fuels running out, the polar ice caps melting, antibiotic-resistant superviruses waiting to unleash themselves upon major metropolitan areas around the globe. So what can a small change in strategy possibly accomplish? What can a substitution at wing or center do besides merely delay the inevitable? What good is any motivational device or impassioned speech or quiet plea to believe in yourselves and the power of teamwork when the other team is destroying you by double digits and the sea levels are rising and our fresh water is becoming toxic and all arable land is slowly turning to desert and we're destined to engage in post-apocalyptic warfare with a mutant race of humans with webbed appendages and gills. Team on three, I added as the buzzer sounded. One, two, three, team.
one time I was at a potluck with Travolta. It was black tie, invitation only. Big shot producers brought homemade quiches and age of consent ingenues brought eggplant parmesan and my almost wife number two Cecilia brought crepe Suzette. Travolta arrived with Farrah Fawcett's nude scene body double, two-thirds of a six-pack of Colt 45, and an expired bag of blue corn tortilla chips. Burt Reynolds brought a live chicken and two pocketfuls of sesame seeds. I had been continuing to look for igneous rock positions, but the only openings were in sedimentary and metamorphic. Cecilia asked me what the difference between sedimentary and igneous rocks was, and I said if she had to ask, she'd never know. My celebrity reupholstery kicks had been drying up, and so I had branched out into deupholstery, Hollywood heavyweights with avant-garde sensibilities and severe drug habits, asking me to rip the leather and linen and acrylic off their sofas and recliners in order to emancipate their living rooms from artifice and reveal their furniture's true selves. Earlier that day, I had deupholstered every chaise lounge in Dennis Hopper's Malibu Beach House. Hopper was too stoned to locate his wallet and paid me instead in fortune cookies. My first fortune read, this cookie was packaged in a facility that processes peanuts. Cecilia looked beautiful that night, as did her crepe Suzette, but I spent most of the potluck flirting with some aspiring actress fresh off the bus from Toledo with a Tupperware container full of seafood Alfredo. Who knows why I did that? I didn't even like seafood Alfredo. In retribution, Cecilia laid it on thick with an MGM casting director who kept telling young women at the potluck not to take this the wrong way, but he was casting a new Sidney Lumet picture the following week, and they'd be perfect as the hooker with a heart of gold. Sidney Lumet, meanwhile, was laying it on thick with an actual hooker. She had a heart of muscle tissue, just like everyone else. Travolta was laying it on thick with Farrah Fawcett's nude scene body double, trying to impress her by opening a tightly sealed jar of pickles handed to him by the potluck's host. But despite his grunting, vein-popping exertions, the pickle jar cap wouldn't budge, at least not until Charlton Heston tapped Travolta on the shoulder and unscrewed the cap with one casual twist. Cheers for Heston, pickles for everyone else, humiliation for Travolta, leaving Farrah Fawcett's nude scene body double and disappearing out the back door as the MGM casting director licked crepe Suzette off Cecilia's fingers and I pretended to enjoy seafood Alfredo and Burt Reynolds chased his chicken around the kitchen with a Ginsu knife, grinning and cackling with murderous glee.
So this one time, I was at a seven-year-old boy's birthday party with Scorsese. No one knew whose child the boy was, but everyone was there. Pacino, Pesci, De Niro, Keitel, Bunk Stanley, the Grotto King. The party was at a Bel Air McDonald's, outfitted with a slide, a jungle gym, and a ball pit. Harrison Ford hung from the monkey bars, and Dustin Hoffman slid down the fire pole, and Orson Welles soared higher and higher on the swings. Though none of us knew the boy's name, we had all brought him presents, which he opened ravenously as soon as they were set before him at his corner booth. Pacino got him a squirt gun, Keitel got him a tricycle, Scorsese got him a comprehensive 700-page guide to Italian neorealist cinema, and the seven-year-old and his friends pelted Scorsese with french fries and brightly colored plastic balls as Scorsese remained half-submerged and motionless in the ball pit, not retaliating, not dodging or ducking, too depressed to escape or fight back. I was still living in an alcove at the Ramada Inn. The motel had reinstalled the ice machine in my living quarters, but I didn't mind. I had picked up a few tricks while living with a gentleman contortionist in Burbank and didn't need a lot of space. My almost wife number four, Arlene, had left me for the producer from Paramount, but I still attended all of her charity events in the hopes of winning her back. The run walk for Skyatica, the jump rope for Bangladesh, the Texas-style barbecue to end apartheid. I won 5Ks and bake-offs and bicycle races and tugs of war, but could never win Arlene's heart. At the seven-year-old's party, during the cutting of the cake, I overheard a cinematographer say that Arlene and the producer were prepping a daughter for a May 1983 release, my fourth almost wife having my first almost child. I would have named her Penelope, but they opted for Francine. To each his own. A seven-year-old knocked Scorsese's thick black glasses off his face with a plastic sword, but Scorsese didn't budge. De Niro and Pesci digging through the ball pit for Scorsese's glasses as the famed director mournfully squinted at the empty wrappers inside his Happy Meal. I sent Arlene a nice card after Francine's birth, but neglected to include sufficient postage, and the card was returned to sender, Reseda Ramada Inn, Floor 3, Ice Machine, Number 1. So this one time, I was in a search party with the Eagles. Two teenage boys had gone missing in the mountains outside of Valverde, and their parents had recruited hundreds of volunteers to scour 16 square miles of wilderness for any clues as to their whereabouts. 
The Eagles weren't the most adept at searching, but they were old hands at partying. Don Felder had 25 pounds of Turkish hash in his backpack. Glenn Fry had volunteers rolling kegs of Michelob and Schlitz up the mountainside. Joe Walsh had a peyote cactus and a gallon drum of body paint. Don Henley kept telling the lost teenager's female friends that he had come to the mountain to find two missing boys, but it turned out the whole time what he truly was searching for was them. My sublet with the gentleman contortionist had run its course, and I was living in a confessional at Our Lady Queen of Mercy. My first confession was that I needed a shaving kit, shampoo, conditioner, and soap. I was still pursuing my almost wife number three, Anastasia, but she was Russian Orthodox and didn't seek penance in booths. Anastasia, now there, was a woman. She didn't speak much English, but that probably worked to my advantage. The English language had gained me little besides antagonism, anxiety, misery, and pain. It was still a boom time for homicide, so I had plenty of work cleaning up murder scenes. My pay was hourly, so money-wise, the messier, the better. Mostly, we mopped up blood from gunshot wounds or the occasional decapitation or stabbing, but we also encountered a lot of blunt trauma, people beating each other to death with every imaginable object. Skillets, toasters, scuba tanks, socks stuffed with loose change. I worked a murder in Inglewood where the victim was fatally assaulted with a boombox still playing Neil Diamonds and Barbara Streisand's You Don't Bring Me Flowers. I worked another in Arlita where the victim got thrown through a high school trophy case and had their skull bashed in with a bronze plaque commemorating exceptional sportsmanship in boys basketball at the 1979 Holiday Invitational. As for backyard grottos, Jack Nicholson had recommended me to Sonny Bono and I was servicing his grotto once a week. It was decent, as far as grottos go. There were banana palms and tiki torches and a small waterfall. Sonny had a reputation for being a laid-back hippie, but he was very particular about my scrubbing technique. All hand motions had to be clockwise and accompanied by proper breathing. The only way I knew how to breathe was in and out, but Sonny said there was more to it than that. I don't know why he had to make everything so complicated. I thought hippies were supposed to let a man breathe how he wanted to breathe. Sonny was always too stoned to locate his wallet and paid me instead in fan mail, which I took back to Our Lady Queen of Mercy and read in the confessional booth, pretending it was written to me. Boy, Sonny's fans were sweet. I wish they could have been my fans too. If I'd had enough money for sufficient postage, I would have written them all back and asked them to send me a shaving kit, shampoo, conditioner, and soap. 
So this one time I was at an estate liquidation with Garfunkel, some B-movie producer had choked to death on a drive through corn dog, and a horde of bargain seekers had descended upon his Studio City mansion to check the price tags on his vintage salt shaker collection and place silent bids on his vast assortment of horror film props. I was still living in a display window in Tarzana, although the window was becoming increasingly gentrified. For six months I had been the only non-mannequin in residence, but after the clothing store started to carry Burberry trench coats and designer pinstripe suits, there had been an influx of young urban professionals capable of remaining perpetually near motionless, and now the non-mannequins outnumbered the mannequins in the display window almost two to one. It was the late 80s, and I now had several almost children. My almost wife number two, Cecilia, had twin daughters with a Hollywood art director. Anastasia had a five-year-old and a two-year-old with a pharmaceutical executive. And my almost wife number five, Caroline, had just given birth to the illegitimate son of Monk Stanley, the Grotto King. Everywhere I went, Bunk Stanley laughed and winked at me from billboards and TV screens and bus stop ads. Maybe Caroline would have had my son if I'd had a bejeweled crown and a scepter. Maybe I'd be more than just an almost father if I'd had an ermine cape. Garfunkel had some stiff competition at the estate liquidation from Elton John and Bernie Taupin. Elton and Bernie were old hands at estate liquidations, dividing and conquering, rooting and rummaging, a ruthless, well-oiled, bargain-hunting machine. Garfunkel hightailed it to the deceased producer's German Expressionist oil paintings, but Elton had already laid claim to them. Garfunkel sprinted upstairs to the producer's salt shaker collection, but Bernie had already scooped up every piece de resistance. Garfunkel dashed downstairs to the producer's trunk full of antique barbecue bibs, but Elton had somehow already made off with the entire trunk. Simon had just won a Grammy for Album of the Year and had a music video featuring Chevy Chase and Heavy Rotation on MTV, the video causing Garfunkel acute intestinal pain whenever he saw it. I told him I knew the feeling. I experienced the same thing whenever Bunk Stanley told me that no one cleans grottos like the Grotto King. With my tap water taste testing drying up and my punching consulting hitting a brick wall, I was looking into getting back into re or de upholstery, so I asked Elton John and Bernie Taupin if they had any furniture that needed renovating. They said no, they had already had all of their furniture reupholstered by Bunk Stanley, the reupholstery king. Boy, that really got my goat. How come Bunk Stanley got to be the king of two things, and I was still the king of nothing? Garfunkel and I went to a Tex-Mex joint in Los Feliz, and You Can Call Me Al played on the speakers, and 
Garfunkel threw up an entire chicken mole enchilada. The next song that played was Rocket Man. I flagged down a busboy and told him to quickly bring a bucket. Strangely pouring it for someone who might see so much more of it. Sometimes a hand, just another slow cooker pushing lead. Just another slow cooker pushing lead. But tell me it's alright. At the time, it really wasn't worth the fight. Whoa, whoa. At the time, it really wasn't worth the fight. This one time I was coaching a middle school basketball team in Echo Park with Axel Rose. The old coach had been fired for drop kicking a water boy and Axel and I had taken over in an attempt to impress two women who worked at the school, an administrative assistant named Amberly for Axel, an eighth grade science teacher named Yesenia, my almost wife number eight for me. Neither of us knew anything about basketball. One of our players brought a golden retriever to practice and suggested that the dog play power forward, and we said, sure, why not? We drank a lot before practice, wine coolers and Jack and Coke. The dog was terrible, couldn't pass, couldn't rebound, couldn't guard, couldn't shoot. Most games it fouled out before the end of the first quarter. Amberly and Yesenia were unimpressed. I had gone into treatment for my compulsion for spray painting animals. Through counseling and group sessions, I had accepted that God had made the animals the colors they were for a reason, and it wasn't my right to turn them bright green, or yellow, or pink. I had met Yesenia in group. She said she used to tag zoo animals, ibex, elephants, walrus, lynx. She knew she had hit rock bottom when a member of her crew got mauled by a Siberian tiger. I knew I had hit rock bottom when I spray painted my almost wife number seven, Josephine's pet Maltese princess. Both of us had made substantial progress in fighting our addiction, but the itch in our spray can fingers never entirely went away. Boy, how I wanted to spray paint that golden retriever, especially when it was costing us another game. I was living on a traffic island in the middle of a roundabout in Del Rey. 
Certainly my fortunes had ebbed, but it wasn't so bad if I pretended I was the only survivor of a horrific plane crash and had become a heroic castaway on a well-landscaped Pacific Isle. I hunted chipmunks and squirrels and collected rainwater and unused colostomy bags and pretended that the constant hum of traffic was the sound of the roiling ocean. Once a week, someone from the city mowed the island's lawn and I had to move my handcrafted tools and lean-to off-site. On weekends, Axel came over and we drank wine coolers and reflected on our life decisions. The traffic wasn't so bad on weekends. The ocean's waves were peaceful and benign. So this one time I was inside a hollow oak tree with Scorsese. The Keebler elves were hosting a launch party for their new Chips Deluxe rainbow chocolate chip cookies and everyone was there. Stallone, Connery, Dangerfield, Swayze. Cecilia and Arlene were there with their almost children, who looked nothing like me, as I had contributed none of my genetic material to their cause. I had been going through a bit of a drought, romance-wise, ever since Arlene had left me for the Paramount producer. The genetic material I had been contributing had mostly just been going into a sock. The Keebler elves were all smashed on open bar vodka. Being elves, their alcohol tolerance was minimal. A few thimbles and they were pretty much done. The most inebriated of the elves were ranting about how tired they were of baking cookies and club crackers and living inside a hollow tree. There was no natural light, and woodpeckers were constantly hammering away right outside their offices, and squirrels often scurried past security and devoured an entire day's work in just a few minutes. Scorsese told the elves that if they thought baking cookies inside of a hollow oak was bad, they should try directing a feature film. I told Scorsese that if he thought directing a feature film was bad, he should try living in a small space between an ice machine and a wall in a Ramada Inn. I had been meaning to move out of the Ramada Inn for a month or so. Most of my allies on the cleaning staff had quit or been let go, and I was finding it harder and harder to acquire complimentary soap and smuggle bagels and jelly-filled donuts out of Continental Breakfast. Also, the ice machine had been giving me nightmares. It hummed, knocked, and rattled in my dreams, which were filled with terrifying visions of ice cubes the size of Beverly Hills mansions falling from the sky and destroying everything and everyone I loved. My dreams used to be so much nicer. My halcyon days, when I was living in Sun Valley with my almost wife number one, Babette, I dreamed of exotic vacations and romantic getaways. 
I dreamed of owning a nice home in the Hollywood Hills and a luxury automobile and an amazing outdoor grill. Then Babette caught me getting extracurricular with the curriculum specialist at the school where she taught, and I moved to Van Nuys where I dreamed of having a modest ranch house in Topanga Canyon and a reliable sedan and a self-cleaning oven. Then my income stagnated and I moved in with the gentleman contortionist in Burbank and I dreamed of renting my own apartment and leasing a functioning two-door and living within walkable distance of a laundromat. Then Bunk Stanley, the Grotto King, put me out of business and I found myself sleeping beside an ice machine in a Ramada Inn in Reseda where I dreamed of frostbite and hypothermia and horrific plummeting ice. Where was I headed next? How much lower could I go? A squirrel got past security and wreaked havoc on the open bar vodka until Stallone caught the roving beast and gave it a stern lecture on party etiquette. Scorsese, meanwhile, offered the Keebler elves some of his homemade snickerdoodles, which were met with mixed to negative reviews. The future takes me to fight on bones. I need them together and desert this detecting in the Bologna wetlands with Vanilla Ice's younger brother Nathaniel Ice when the ground had given out beneath us and left us submerged to our sternums in a murky suspension of brackish water and silt. My almost wife number nine Cassiopeia was supposed to have joined us but we had gotten into a violent argument over whether or not metal detectors could also detect lies, and so it was only Nathaniel Ice who was present to frantically search for a vine or large stick with which to rescue us from the clutches of the wetlands swallowing soil. Conditions had deteriorated at the traffic island in Del Rey, and so I had been living on parade floats 
passing myself off as a member of Lions Clubs, mayoral re-election campaigns, and student homecoming committees, and subsisting on Tootsie Rolls and Blow Pops, I rested from the grasps of unlooking children. The upside was I got cheered at a lot, but the downside was I had developed severe vitamin deficiencies. I met Cassiopeia at a parade for Parade Awareness on Abbott Kenny Boulevard. Our early days together were so thrilling, the two of us inseparable, showered constantly by hurled candies and applauded by endless sidewalks of strangers. But as with most parade relationships, we struggled to sustain our ardor for one another after the parades ended, the crowds dispersed. The floats returned to storage, the pixie sticks and red hots and Mike and Ikes ran out. It was so much easier with the strangers applauding us. It was so much easier with the strings of heart-shaped candies around our necks providing instructions. Let's kiss. You and me. Be mine. As I was sinking into the quicksand and arm's length from a panicked, flailing vanilla ice, I wondered whether life always seemed inherently more valuable when confronted with the real and immediate possibility of death. Certainly, right then, as I grasped and jerked and clawed for survival, which Nathaniel Ice said was only making things worse, I very much wanted to emerge from the quicksand and fill my lungs with oxygen and continue my lifetime membership in the human race. But what about when I was waking up Monday mornings on a traffic island, when I was sneaking off at night to spray paint animals, when I was losing yet another almost wife to Bunk Stanley, the grotto and reupholstery king? Did I feel like grasping then? then, reaching desperately for a spindly tree limb extended to me by Nathaniel Ice, or did I feel like letting the earth devour me and subsume my soul to the subsoil? Before I could formulate a definitive answer, the eagles appeared, fresh off a reunion concert at the Holiday Bowl, saving the day with a rope ladder that bassist Timothy B. Schmidt lowered to me in vanilla ice from a hovering hot air balloon. It was unclear why the eagles were flying in a hot air balloon at such a low altitude over the Bologna wetlands. Don Henley, after pulling me and vanilla aboard, said, If you have to ask, you'll never know. The eagles extended the rope ladder to Nathaniel Ice as well, and we rose above the wetlands and flew north over Del Rey, where I had shared wine coolers and a traffic island with Axel Rose, and over Venice, where I had first made love to Cassiopeia in the back seat of a convertible promoting a local city councilman's re-election campaign, and over Santa Monica, where I had witnessed Garfunkel outrun antique mall security guards while carrying a saber-toothed tiger skull, and the Palisades, where I had lost Arlene to a Paramount producer, and Tarzana, where I had lost Caroline to Bunk Stanley, the grotto and reupholstery king, and Reseda, 
where I had lost sleep to a nightmare-inducing ice machine, and Valverde, where those two teenage boys had gotten lost 16 years ago, never to be found, Don Henley pointing out to Vanilla and Nathaniel Ice the mountains where he had searched for the boys fruitlessly, but in doing so, discovered a beautiful connection, if only for one night, with the boys' friends and classmates, Mary Louise and Sunflower. I wished Cassiopeia could have seen the mountains then, from the hot air balloon at sunset with the eagles and the ices, but she couldn't, and never would. I had quicksand everywhere, in my shoes, my mouth, my hair, every crevice and orifice. No one ever figured out what had happened to those teenage boys in the mountains outside Valverde. I never figured out whether a metal detector was capable of discerning all of my lies. So this one time, I was at the LA County Fair with Travolta. Cecilia and I had temporarily patched things up after I'd slept with the aspiring actress from Toledo and she'd slept with the casting director from MGM and we were on a double date with Travolta and the new face of Legs Pantyhose. Boy, that was a nice evening. Cotton candy, funnel cakes, whack-a-mole, bumper cars, the tilt-a-whirl. I came close to proposing to Cecilia that night as we rose above the fair on the Ferris wheel. I hadn't planned on it, but being there with her, 160 feet above the Barkers and Marks and the brilliant flashing lights, made me instinctively reach into my pocket for a ring. But of course, there was no ring, just my wallet and a bundle of tickets and an almost expired latex condom. But what if I'd proposed anyway? What if I'd given Cecilia an onion ring? an invisible ring, a ring to be named later. What if I'd slipped the condom over her finger and told her to use her imagination? But there's no use in mulling over what ifs. I never asked and she never said yes. These days I've been living in a downtown payphone. There isn't a lot of space, but I get to overhear all kinds of interesting conversations. A lot of the conversations start with, I think someone has been living in this payphone. The other day, Stevie Nicks used my payphone to call customer service about the new microwave she had just bought. She was convinced that the microwave was reading her thoughts and corrupting her mind. I couldn't hear what customer service said, but it seemed like she was put on hold a lot. The hold music was Fleetwood Mac's Landslide. I hope it was earning Stevie some royalties. Before Cecilia Travolta, the new face of Legs Pantyhose, and I left the county fair, Travolta bought three shots at a ball and bucket game. Travolta told the new face of Legs Pantyhose he was going to win her the giant stuffed gorilla hanging on a hook above their heads and tossed his balls at a row of small plastic buckets. 
none of the balls came remotely close to going in. Travolta bought three more balls and tried again with similarly disappointing results. It's okay, said the new face of Lug's pantyhose. I don't want a stuffed gorilla anyway. I'm not really into monkeys. And Travolta said, a gorilla isn't a monkey, it's an ape, and bought three more balls, which all bounced harmlessly off the rims of the buckets and onto the ground. What's the difference between a monkey and an ape, said Travolta's date. And he said, if you have to ask, you'll never know. Cecilia tugged on my shirt sleeve. She was tired and wanted to go home, but Travolta was our ride and I didn't have any money left for a cab. Three more balls for the young slinger, said the game operator, and Travolta told him to cut the chatter and just hand him the balls. There was a crowd now, local teens and curious tourists and Saturday Night Fever and Grease enthusiasts forming a semicircle around Travolta as he threw away another three dollars, his balls traveling every which way except for into the plastic buckets that stood between him and the goofy synthetic gorilla. John, please, said the new face of Leg's pantyhose, but Travolta shoved her roughly aside, his balls continuing to glance off the buckets, his fingers continuing to pull dollar bills out of his wallet. How much had he already spent? A hundred dollars? Two hundred dollars? The crowd whooped and whistled and cheered, and Travolta called for silence, but this only made them whoop and whistle more. Three more balls for the young gun in polyester, said the game operator, and Travolta said, one more word out of you, and the next balls I throw will be your own. The new face of Lex pantyhose stormed off, and Cecilia grabbed my arm and said, pleadingly, isn't there anything you can do? What if, I sometimes think, but there's no use in mulling over what ifs. What I did was nothing, nothing except watch as Travolta futilely threw ball after ball into the hot dog wrapper riddled carnival dirt until Burt Reynolds finally tapped Travolta on the shoulder, grabbed the three balls from his hand, and underhanded them effortlessly one by one into the plastic buckets. Plop, plop, plop. The game operator announcing, we have a winner, and handing Reynolds the giant stuffed gorilla as Travolta slipped away from the delirious roaring crowd and disappeared into the throngs of the midway, the calliope whistling, the funnel cakes sizzling in hot oil, the cars of the ferris wheel rising and descending above our heads, and the carnival's million brilliant flashing lights, until the gears slowed, and the carnies removed the earthbound passengers, and those waiting at the front of the line stepped forward, their own ascension soon to begin. Was blood, wasn't